I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello there. Welcome to the latest episode of the Driven Celebrities podcast. I'm Andy Jay. I'm the host of the show and I'm absolutely thrilled to bits that you've taken the time to download and listen to us this week. We have some incredible guests for you and a new bonus super special feature because you know it's getting cold and we all have the need for a few reasons to smile so we're throwing in an extra special bonus feature for you today let me tell you who's on the show first we have from sas who dares wins the incredible quite remarkable jason fox we have a lot of fun and um, i wanted to go really long in this interview for you but the trouble is at one point while we were chatting he gets in a lift and it kind of doesn't work so i've left it with the radio edit for that one because you know you just can't get, come, keep chatting like that anyway he's one of the guests then i have a lovely sit down chat with the glorious shirley and martin kemp what a lovely couple they were so much fun i managed to record with them a few weeks ago in the driven chat truck and they were just really lovely lovely company both on and off air so that was really special then i get a chance to say hello to jason isaacs oh hollywood legend you know lucius malfoy from the harry potter films and the star of event horizon and so many others proper legendary actor he was so much fun and i tell you what we didn't even get to start the interview you'll hear it. i'm going to play you the whole thing because it was just this lovely, lovely chat. I usually like to sort of say to them off air, so, you know, hi, how are you doing? It's Andy, how are you going? Uh, are you ready to start? And they sort of say yes, and they go, okay, right, now I just need you to be quiet for a second, and then I'll do an intro and we're in. I didn't even get to do that with Jason. We were just, he was just on it from the minute we got starting. So that was, uh, that was hilarious. And then the big bonus for today, and this is so lovely, I'm really, really chuffed to be able to do this for you. There's a phenomenal actor called Bryony Corrigan. She is in the Mischief Theatre Company. Now, if you're familiar with the West End, you'll be aware of The Goes Wrong Show, Peter Pan Goes Wrong, The Play That Goes Wrong, etc. Well, she's one of the founders of the Mischief Theatre Company, and she's been in all the, uh, the original performances. And, of course, they make Christmas shows that go out on BBC One, The Goes Wrong Show. And that's the same for this year as well. They are hilarious. I literally wheeze and cry with laughter when I watch them. And she is one of the big reasons for that. She's just such a phenomenal slapstick performer, as well as being an incredibly talented actor and, and absolutely joyful. So I managed to record with her in the summertime, and we've not had the opportunity to get her on the radio yet. But I didn't want to sit on it because it's Christmas time and she's going to be on BBC One very soon. And I just wanted to share with you some of her magic because she's such a special guest and I wanted to get it out there as soon as I could. So here we go. Bryony Corrigan is our extra special bonus guest that you won't have heard anything from on Talk Radio at all. Because I know a lot of people come to this podcast having not listened at all on Talk Radio over the weekends. That's absolutely cool. That's fine with me. Consume us however you wish. Please leave us a review. Please do give us a nice uh, few stars and, and some kind words. And do tell your friends. Let's dive in. That's enough ramble from me. Hope you're having a great week. Enjoy the show. Driven with Andy J on Talk Radio in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Now I'm very, very pleased to be able to welcome to the show Special Forces expert, former Royal Marine Commando, Special Forces Sergeant and the thoughtful hard man in SAS Who Dares Wins. He's got a new book out and I can't wait to talk to him. It's Jason Fox. How are you doing, Jason? 
I'm good, Andy. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. That thoughtful hard man tag. I'm, and I know it's self-penned, but how does it how does it feel? Um, I try to pay it no attention. To be fair, <laughs> it's um, it's an odd thing to have sort of pinned on you on a badge. Yeah. So, you know, well, people reference you as that. So it's, yeah, it's odd. I've got a lot. I've got enough mates that keep me uh, grounded. Where if if ever that comes up. Well, what I love is, I mean, if anyone, if anyone ever watches the show, SAS Who Dares Wins is, is, yeah. I mean, it's it's a tough watch sometimes because you feel for the contestants and occasionally you feel for you guys as well because you're kind of setting these challenges that you know you can do, and you mm. know they can do it as well, but you also know that you kind of have to break them to get them through it. Yeah, it's, I mean, just to sort of like bring sort of people's awareness about on that one, like. The, the the show is like it's probably the hard and I'm not being biased because I'm in it but it is I reckon the hardest thing on television in the world because it is there's like 40 48 hours make up 46 minutes of an episode and it is full on you know the whole time it is full on so you very you only get a snippet that's shown on the telly so it's yeah it is bonkers but there is an awful yeah there's an awful lot that we do to them that then it, it basically strips them back and shows them what they actually are capable of. If they're willing to stick with it, that is. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not like a Bush Tucker trial. It's a little bit more significant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you'll also be surprised at how little due diligence people do before coming on, and like doing a bit of research and find out what they need to do to prepare, and they just turn up in an absolute flat spin, emotionally and physically. Really. You mean like the yeah. kind of like the people that, that enter the marathon and then just kind of tell their mates, "Oh yeah, I jog a bit," and then just show up and like, "Oh, it's- yeah, it's exactly it's exactly like that." And and actually, you know, the celebs, I'd have thought they'd have done a little bit more uh, research as well. And I, I I regularly speak to Wayne Bridge still, who um, I suppose got to the end and succeeded on the first celeb series, and he yeah. still gets phone calls off. He still gets phone calls off people that are considering doing it, and they're like, you know, mate, what, you know, how hard is it? And he, he you know, he lays it down. He's like, yeah, it's the hardest thing I've done, and and actually, he's probably still the best one that we've had on there. But um, and then he, and then he'll get a phone call, you know, a few a few few weeks later from the same person saying, oh, mate, yeah, you were right. I didn't believe you, but you were right. <laughs> well, do you know what though? The ones that don't do the research, that just kind of show up and get a proper shock. I'm not going to yeah. name names, and I'm not asking you to name names, but I can kind of guess <laughs> some of the ones that it might be. And my yeah. my sort of hunch is that the only thing they know about the show before they come on it is how much they're getting paid to be on it. Yeah, exactly. I think that's that is exactly it. I think they have. I think they they are under the illusion that we sort of like stop after each task, and every, you know the tea and stickies come out, and everyone gets hair and makeup done. But no, <laughs> <they're>, <laughs> yeah, it, the, their their perception changes rapidly. Yeah, it's not quite the same, is it? Now, you're obviously no. kind of affectionately nicknamed Foxy on the show, obviously Jason Fox yeah. being your name. And, and, and I believe from reading your books, et cetera, that, you know, that was, that was kind of what you were kind of known as by your mates in the squad, et cetera. Yeah. It got me wondering, right, because mm. it's such an obvious go-to nickname for you, right? So, so I was kind of thinking you, to myself. You, you, you say that, but the amount of people that they've got my full name in front of them and they're like ah, what, where'd you get your nickname from i'm like are you serious 
<laughs> You're kidding. That's no. that's brilliant. Well, to me, it's it's almost it's almost too obvious, right? And I like if if you were in my squad, and obviously I'd, mm. I'd, I'd I'm not worthy, but like if it were the case, I'd call I'd probably call you Hollywood. <laughs> but yeah, I quite, quite like that one. It works, doesn't it? Because of Jamie Fox, Jason Fox, Jay Fox, and so on and so forth. And yeah, then, you know, I might I might start calling myself that actually. <laughs> Quite like the, I like the I like the change. Well, now you're a TV star as well. It sort of feels it feels appropriate. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I might get I might get a slap off one of my mates if I actually did start calling myself that. <laughs> well, I mean, there's only one way to find out. You know, <laughs> next time you're allowed to mingle, which could be weeks or months away, who knows? You could yeah. just rock in Hollywood's in the building. <laughs> yeah, that would be an interesting experiment. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, maybe don't do that. It's, uh, after all, you're the thoughtful hard man. So, you know, people might be like, hang on, you've thought too much about this. You can blame me. It's all good. <laughs> now, look, I've got to talk to you about the new book because it's, I mean, I, I got a copy of it a few days ago. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, Jason, in this in this line of work, especially at the moment, for some reason, everyone's got a book out. Like, uh, for some reason, because it's like yeah. lockdown, everyone's been writing books. So I have been sent yeah. loads of books lately, and I, I'm grateful for all of them, but there's a lot of reading to get through. And and sometimes, mm. sometimes, hand on heart, I, I kind of skim it a bit. Do you know what I mean? Because I, yeah. I don't have long to get, and I'm not a fast reader. So I'm just kind of like that. Now, your book's been in my inbox. I clicked it open, and I haven't been able to stop my word really yeah man i mean crikey awesome. this is i mean it's it is brilliant it's i mean i'm gonna do my best to sum up kind of loosely what it is and then you do the proper version if that's all right because because i, cause I <laughs> well, you'll you'll probably do a better job of it to be fair but <laughs> go on let's have, let's see what it sounds like well in a nutshell it's how to build how to build inner strength and thrive under pressure it's how to find your inner grit <clears throat> yeah but it is, it is yeah but it's based around this incredible career that you've had in the military and the things you've gone through and the things you've seen. I mean, just the start of the book, I, I realised I hadn't held my breath for about six pages. I mentioned I'm not a fast reader, so I actually had to go to hospital to get checked over for that. And then I started yeah. breathing again. I mean, <laughs> honestly, mate, absolutely incredible. And the, the, the thing is, you're on edge the whole time you're reading this book. Whilst learning, whilst absorbing your knowledge and your information and your techniques, you're also yeah. just kind of, it's edge of the seat stuff, isn't it? Because it's real and you're imagining and you, you depict things so well, the way you kind of conjure up the images and, and recall the, the incidents mm. that you've been involved in. Man, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, I was anxious to talk to you because it was just like I want to check in because you've been very open about your mental health and, and how you had to had to quit the military because of PTSD and, and, and all the rest of it and so yeah and, and and that's very raw and very real as well and it's you don't leave anything sort of unsaid really no it was I mean you know it, this is basically it is a sort of add-on to the first book because um that was obviously written as it was you know my journey with whatever it is that I've been through emotionally and, you know, due, you know, mental health issues and all that sort of stuff. And it was upon reflection of doing that, that book. It was, it was hard to do, to be fair, but it was upon reflection that me and Matt Allen, who's the writer, who's very, very good, we sat down and we were like, do you know what? I, I was actually talking to him and I was like, you know, I've spoke about the journey, but how did I, how did I get through that? And how do people get through it? You know, what are the lessons that I either taught myself or I got taught by someone to knuckle down and just, you know, grit find the grit 
to to get on with life. And um, well, I was like, ah, maybe there's scope in like actually putting um, pen to paper again and turning, you know, basically putting some meat on the bones of that first book by explaining how you go about, you know, finding that inner strength. Yeah, because I mean, in a, in a way, it's a sort of toolbox of of how to cope with everything that life throws at you. And obviously, you know, you're aware that the reader isn't going to be hanging out in some of the most kind of dangerous war zones on the planet. You've done mm. that and you've explained, look, from this, I learned to do that. And you're not, you know, it's, it's not condescending in any way. It's not like, look, I'm, I'm hard no, no. doing all this hard stuff. You're accepting that everyone lives their own life. You know, it's, it's some, yeah. some are, are born to serve. Some do different things, more flowery things like talk to thoughtful hard men on the radio, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but there's no, no but they all, it all, it, it all brings each, each life has got its own stresses in it. It's all relative. So, and you know, if you can take something from one, one environment and duplicate that or, or overlay it onto the next one and it helps you get through things. And I thought, yeah, that's a good idea. I think it's really strong. And, and, and the other thing that I like about the book is it's in two parts. You've got the, the battle mind, which is almost your, your background, you know, your basic training as it were, it's sort of getting yeah. the reader ready for, kind of primed as it were for, for for charging onto the battlefield to take us to take it on and, and kind of take us to the next level and then part two of the book is is the kind of the strength and 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 you know conditioning guide as it were uh, I, I don't yeah. know if i'm using this correctly but but the nice thing is that at the end of every segment you have a debrief which is yeah. almost kind of in a nutshell here is a quick handy reminder of of the lessons that you, you've just been presented with without the kind of imagery around it just kind of right you do this, you do that, yeah. you do the other. And you keep it simple plenty of times, like your rule of five to survive with your purpose and experience and your brotherhood, self-awareness, honesty. Yeah. You know, it's all it's all there for people to kind of, you, you don't spoon feed us, but but there's plenty of obvious moments where, okay, this is the message. All right. I want, Excellent. Yeah. I wanted it to, so I wanted it to read like it's a, it is a book, you know, a story, but I also wanted it to be like, you could use it as a reference as well. You know, you can go back through and give yourself reminders as and when you need them and you know you remember you read something somewhere about a certain technique and all you've got to do is flick back through it and then you can re easily reference it again do you know what i mean yeah always remain honest to yourself with regard to how you feel you know don't don't ignore what's going on inside your head you know each time you've got some emotion going on check in with it give it the respect it deserves and then you'll be able to work out how you get yourself back into a more positive headspace um and then ultimately, you know, yeah, we're in we're in uncharted territory, unprecedented times. People keep saying, um, not through choice, but what we can control is our outlook on life and our positivity. You need to keep, you know, you, it's hard work. I, mean, I, I get that, but you know, you still really need to sort of like always find that silver lining. You know, part of the book that I'd mention is um, there's a bit in there where I talk about the cheerfulness in the face of adversity. It's something you get taught as a young marine, and that. It's not about laughing at things when it's serious. It's about trying to find that silver lining to remain positive, because it's that positive mindset that will will help you get out of whatever sticky situations you're in. And you know, and and and, and bad times don't last forever. Do you know what I mean? It's 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 you know they're they're actually there. They're they're useful because they make the good times are so much more better. So it's always again trying to find that positive slant on things. Yes, absolutely. And and the other thing, I guess, is that everybody, at the start of the year, people 
plenty of people kind of knew what 2020 was going to be. You know, you kind of enter a year and you kind of know, right, well, you know, so, and, and there was all this excitement, wasn't there, for 2020, because it's a new decade and everyone was like, the 20s are going to be the best yet. You know, we're out of this, we're out of that. 20s are going to be brilliant. And at the start yeah, exactly. of the year, say the beginning of January, everyone was able to kind of look and those of, you know, you know, those people who had kind of nine to five jobs would know, right, well, I'll be doing this and we can plan that holiday and, yeah. you know, we'll be doing this, that and the other. Presumably at the start of the year, you were like, okay, we've got that many tv shows to finish to, to sort of film mm. that many to finish off maybe this book wasn't on the radar at this point in time you know maybe that this is a result of lockdown but my point is you kind of knew loosely at least the roadmap for the year ahead that all got torn mm. up that all got completely changed how did you yeah. immediately kind of regroup did you gather information did you settle yourself what did you do when it was um, kind of, when it was all chucked to the wind well, just, as it were? just just Going back to the the book side of it quickly, this, it, we 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 pretty much finished this before the beginning of the year. Wow! And and it was going to be get it was we were going to release. I think it was going to go out in May at one point. And then obviously this all happened, and it was like, well, we don't know what the landscape looks like, so we're going to have to adjust. You know, take a deep breath and just let things, you know, work themselves out. So then obviously the book comes out this month, uh, last month, um, and ultimately it's you know. I, I, I'm not again. It's my book, so obviously I'm going to say this, but it's a perfect book to read, considering the year we've had. But, yeah. but um, for me, it was about you know, yeah, okay, things changed that were out of my control. What can I control? So it was about looking at what opportunities I had, and then trying to work out how I could capitalize on them. You know, work had finished, so what am I going to do? I started to look at home fitness stuff with a friend of mine. We were dealing with that. And then obviously as time moved on again, you know, because humans are very adaptable and they, 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 they survive, the, the filming opportunities that disappeared soon came back to fruition because, you know, people had worked out protocols and procedures to put in place so we could get, get work done. So, it's yeah, it's been different, difficult, but ultimately each time something changes or it seems, you know, that we're here heading into difficult times, it's about... You know, taking those deep breaths, pausing, and then just really adjusting and adapting what the what the landscape looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Am I right in saying I might I might be wrong, Jason? But am I right in thinking that at the start of lockdown, the first one, you actually yeah. were, were living up with Ollie, Ollie Ollerton? Yeah, that's so. The, what happened was we, me and were out in New Zealand. That 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 shoot we were involved in literally got cancelled, and they were like, "Right, you got to get back." It was a race time. We nearly got locked. We nearly got locked down in New Zealand, which was disastrous, to be honest. Anyway, we got we managed to get back just in time. Um, and as we come back, you know, we didn't know what the, you know, what it was going to look like. And I live in London, and Ollie's mate, we've got plenty of space up in where he lives. Let's get. Why don't you come up? And I was like, "Yeah, okay." So, you know, go back, pack my bags got up there and then we locked through the day after i got up there so that's where i stayed for the for the initial part of this year jason fox's life under fire is out to buy in all bookshops now coming up next i'm so thrilled to be able to sit down with a power couple the lovely martin and shirley kemp next here on driven driven with andy J on talk radio in association with paramex digital you dream it we bring it to life find out more at drivenchat.com 
Welcome back to Driven here on Talk Radio. I'm so pleased to be able to welcome my next two guests, a power couple with love at the centre of everything they do. Martin and Shirley Kemp joined me recently in the Driven Chat truck to discuss the release of their new book that they've written together. It's called It's a Love Story, and it's dedicated to their dear friend, George Michael. Now, Shirley started the interview by reminiscing about how her and Martin first met, all thanks to George. We used to go to George's house and listen to music in his bedroom and one of the bands we both loved was Spandau. And then as Wham was starting to kind of get a little known, we got invited to go to um, a theatre premiere. And I'd never even, I didn't really know what a theatre premiere was. I didn't even dress up, didn't wear any makeup, just kind of just crashed along there. And then George came running up to me going, Spandau here, Spandau here. <laughs> and I just froze, I went, no, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to sit and let's get, get Martin to come over because they knew that I fancied him. And I literally hid in this little kind of alcove in the theatre. And next minute I saw my friend David bringing Martin over to me and George beaming, going like nudging me. <laughs> I just, oh, I was so embarrassed. I could have killed them. So anyway, that night, little did I, and little did I know that Martin wanted to meet me. So that it would have been very different if I'd known that. Uh, Martin then said, would you like to come to a wine bar? So we went to a wine bar, and as we, George and I, were leaving, Martin gave me a piece of paper and said, give me a call. But I held on to that piece of paper for about three weeks because I was too scared to call him. Was it fear or was it the treating meme, keep him keen? No, it was just fear. You've oh, got wow. to remember, in our days, it wasn't like you could send a text on a mobile. You had to call the family home because both of us still lived mm. at home with our parents. And I felt intimidated to call right. his house thinking, how many other girls are going to be ringing saying, can I speak to Martin? <laughs> George one day said, what are you going to call? He was really frustrated with me. So we ran into his sister's bedroom, picked her phone up. He dialed it and then just went, go. Brilliant. So Brilliant. that is that story. I thought it was too much, uh, too much front to say, can I have your number? You know, if you give somebody True. your number, then you're giving We've them got the option. The option. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. So he's but, a gentleman. But I had it's seen Shirley. Yeah. The first time I ever saw Shirley was uh, on... Wham were doing Young Guns on Top of the Pops. And I was at home with my mum and dad. And we I remember so clearly the day that I was sitting on the floor on my mum and dad's carpet with my back up against the arm of the chair watching the Thursday night Top of the Pops. And Shirley came on and I was absolutely obsessed with the blonde girl in the white dress. And to the point when, you know, that, that evening when we met mm. uh, uh, that show. At the theatre. At the theatre. I felt like I already knew her. And I just so, didn't uh, know that. So when we were writing the book, we didn't write it together. We both went off and did our own separate kind of sessions and getting to grips with it. So when I read, because Martin, when he, he met me, he never told me that story. He kept it kind of cool. Yeah. And it really wasn't until I read the first part where he talks about how he felt about me. I, I just couldn't sleep that night. I still, I just took me back to being that young girl thinking, wow, I never had a clue he was that into me. Yeah, you know, sorry, but uh, that, that's the idea, was the idea when we started the book, you know, because I wanted to put it together for a long time, but I always felt like Shirley's and I, my, our lives were like kind of uh, a little bit of a movie where we've got a plot and a subplot and the, the plot and the subplot keep moving, uh, you know, taking it in turns to yeah. be the lead and the, and the backup story and the lead and the backup story. And uh, so I always felt like that. And I, I think it was probably because, you know, I've got history in film and, and directing and all of that. I see everything as a movie anyway. Right. So um, 
That it was why a good I movie. It would well. I mean, it's real life. Which yeah, it's real the place, life, isn't it? Isn't it? Well, that's life why story, I, I yeah. wanted to uh, put the book together where we were. It's both of our autobiographies rather than one. I love the perspectives of it as well because it is. It's one chapter taken care of by yeah. one of you, then seen it from the other perspective. Yeah. Did you write simultaneously? Were you in the same room going, right? Listen, no. let's write about our wedding no, now. Go. Absolutely you know? no, not. No. That's what I'm saying. We no. absolutely separate. We knew the areas. Right. It, it, you know. Yeah. We knew the main stories. But it, it would have been too calculated to have yeah. sat down and said, "You write this. I'm going to tell." You know, it was just. I mean, obviously, we've we've been together so long that it's inevitable that it was going to kind of just all mould together. We knew the main stories, you know, knew the, <laughs> the bits that we wanted to uh, to approach. And uh, it was just lovely when we both finished it and going back and me starting to read Shirley's and Shirley reading mine, you know, it was just, it was a lovely experience. Was there a moment when you were reviewing each other's where you were kind of like, you can't say that. Hang on, no, 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 that's between yeah, us. Yeah, there were a few. <laughs> I said to Martin, you can't say yeah, that. Yeah, there were There's a few no I had to take out. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, oh, don't mistress. No, you know, red line, red line. Yeah, it would have been fine like 20 years ago, but uh, today's climate, you know, is not so good. Well, also, you need a follow-up, right? You know, it's, yeah. it's still yeah, a love story. Yeah, don't give too much away. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's an ongoing love story. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, it's the, yeah. it's the classic rule of show, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's essential. But, I mean, you guys, I mean, the, the book is called It's a Love Story. And it's, yeah. you know, it's one of those things where, at the moment in this current climate, you know, everybody's in this very strange mm. chapter of time where we're all in it together. We're all mm. learning together mm. in this mad new world. The new normal keeps changing and we're following different rules. Yeah. And quite a lot of the light of life has been dimmed for everybody. Yeah. And actually having a story as, as honest and real and, and joyful yeah. as yours, and there are some serious challenging moments which mm. I'd like to talk about, but, but to be able to hook it on, it's a love story. The fact that you guys have this beautiful thing of you got yeah. together so young and you've stayed the distance. Mm. Because all marriages and all relationships have their ups and downs and they have their... So there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee in a relationship, is there? No. You know, all you make these vows, people say, I'll do, I'll, you know, all that. But life throws really hard situations at you. And even though I know we've stuck together, I don't condemn anyone who got divorced. No. Or I, I would hate anyone to feel, oh, I, I must be a failure. I didn't, I didn't save my marriage. Because I don't think it's for everyone. I don't. I think there's something like a divine intervention with two souls who are meant to be together. Yes, well, you, you clearly have some quite incredible, I don't know what the right phraseology is, but you mm. seem to have this almost second sight about certain it's things. It's just intu intuition, really, being right. intuitive. No, no, let's get it right. Shirley's a witch. <laughs> <laughs> She's a witch. I've always known it. The, the cauldron was the giveaway. Yeah, yeah, I thought yeah. we'd have an argument. Yeah. No, no. I, I, yeah. do here. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a what lot have of spooky moments in my from? life. <laughs> <laughs> well, because, and you know, there are two key moments that are clear in your yeah. relationship. The first one is your knowledge that you were going to be going married. To marry. before, mm -hmm. Which, nowadays, it might be a bit weird. You, yeah. know, you, you kind of say that to someone you're like, like, hang on. Stalker. You know, well, exactly, because <laughs> yeah. you can learn so much about someone from their Instagram posts. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, you might be able to, all right, hang on. Yeah, yeah. But that definitely didn't happen. So, so it's lucky there wasn't <laughs> that. Yeah. Then. Yeah. But crucially, you know, I hope you don't mind me saying no, this, carry but, on, but yeah. you know, you've saved Martin's life. You know, mm. at, at the very least, you've saved his legs and his sight. Mm. Now, the, yeah, the listeners might, I, know what I'm, might not know what I'm talking about, but, but you've, yeah. you've had two brain benign brain yeah. tumors. Yeah. 
Yeah. I do wonder how far he would have taken it before he thought, hmm, maybe I ought to go to a doctor, you know, because he was living with it and ignoring it. But I understand because you weren't having terrible side effects. Yeah. Well, there was a moment, you know, there was a moment that it, reality kind of st struck home. And I was out in Canada and um, Shirley, Shirley had mentioned to me that, oh, your head feels like you've got a little lump on there. And it, but it wasn't like a benign soft tissue it wasn't like a soft tissue lump. It was um, this. It was my skull. Right. So it was kind of like, what's going on? Bone you know, shape, it's very yeah. strange. Uh, and uh, I was out in Canada and I was filming an episode of The Outer Limits, which is this sci-fi movie. Yeah. And um, I was playing this uh, an old professor scientist who invented a formula for everlasting life. And so I'm like 200 years old, sitting in a makeup chair with this. <laughs> You know, old uh, prosthetics on, and uh, they're just pulling over a ball cap over my head. You know, with a few wispy grey hairs on the side. And as they pulled the ball cap on, everyone in the makeup wagon just go quiet because the lump on my head is just outstanding. Oh, no. You know, where you couldn't see it under my hair so much, right. with the ball cap on top of it, it just looked like it was Ayers Rock. It looked massive. And everybody looked at it and was going, something's going on there. And so I, f I finished the last day of shooting and then uh, came straight back and I went straight to doctors, didn't I? MRI. Yeah, but even though, no, but you went to the, our local GP. Yeah. And they weren't particularly bothered because, Martin, you looked amazing. You were so fit physically at that oh. time. You're in your 30s, you yeah. looked great. And I remember the GP saying, we think it's calcium growth, right? Where, because it was okay. so, it was bone. And I wasn't worried. I thought that makes sense because yeah. he's perfectly well. And you didn't really hear much about people having brain tumours. So that didn't. So when. No, I did. I, one person, after all, they said, so everyone kept saying to me, yeah, you know who else said that? Euthy Joyce. She died. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> great. Thanks yeah. for that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that example. But I think the biggest shock was to see someone who looked so good, so fit, and then four days later be taken into hospital to have it removed. Mm and become some like a but it was, it, injured soldier. But you know, I, I, it was the luckiest thing that ever happened to me. You know, that, that moment of this big thing on the back of my head showing itself. Because mm. when they x-rayed it, when they MRI'd it, what they found is one that was deep in the middle that would have killed me. Right. And um, that one there would have hidden itself. Mm. And it was only because of the big one on the back that they found that little one. And I would have had two years before that one would have uh, put too much pressure on what was around it. What the book tries to do is show that, because our lives were incredible, really. Our story was just an upward graph all the way through, you know, from Spandau to Wham, to going to Hollywood, to, to enjoying life. And you never know what is around the corner. From one minute you're at the top of your game to the next minute you're on the floor. And uh, that story, and trying to come out of that, the other side of that, five years later, is what the book's about. Well, because that's the thing, isn't it? The, the first of the brain tumours was, mm. was a massive thing for you to deal with because it's the yeah. first hiccup, effectively, mm. at least to, to the outside world. It's the first hiccup in your, in your lives, in your yeah. lives together. You know? And it's a massive one, and it could have had horrific consequences yeah. that I imagine you've both thought about and shelved and left it, left it behind. But then yeah. you had a second one. Mm. I mean, but you, but you chose not to share that with the world. Well, because um, 
because you know I don't know if it was I think at the time it was more about I didn't want to be known as Martin Kemp brain tumor right you know this you know when you see a picture of yourself in the newspaper when I see a picture of myself in the newspaper I see uh, they always put a little tagline like Martin Kemp Spandau Valley or Martin Kemp EastEnders yeah. or the or craze, craze. Yeah, but yeah. all of a sudden I went for a period where it was just Martin Kemp brain tumor Martin Kemp brain tumor right. and I had to get out of that to do that and then five years later I have to go through it again right. I thought I would never be anything else other than Martin Kemp brain tumor. The poster boy for brain tumor. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. when when he was going through it, he didn't once become a victim of it. Okay. He didn't talk about it much. You know, I wasn't sure if that was a good thing or a bad thing, but all mm -hmm. I knew was how he's dealing with it seems very um, positive because he was never questioned. I was the one, why has he got it? Yeah. I was trying to research, why do people get brain tumors? Because I asked the surgeon why, and he just looked at me and said, I don't know. And I, that devastated me. That So I was constantly, I mean, did we have the, I can't remember if we had the internet then, or, or even a computer. But Martin was never, ever a victim of it. And I think that courage and strength that he showed during that is most probably the other thing that saved him. Yeah, but you have that courage and strength because... You don't want to lay it off on your family, right. you know, how bad you feel or, or how worried you are. The last thing you want to do is lay it off on people that are close to you and supporting you like Shirley and my kids. You know, I didn't want to make it worse for Shirley. And which is, um, which is why you know, I'm such a huge believer in therapy, you know, okay. talking to people when you're in a hole like that. Right. Because you're talking to somebody that you don't know. You know, and they can take, you can lay it all off on them and they can take it home and forget about it. But if you lay all your problems like that, you know, oh my God, I'm worried I'm going to, you know, this is going to be my last few days off on your wife, then she carries that and it comes back at you and it's ping pong. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then everyone's affected. And yeah. Everyone's affected. affected. Because this, I mean, this had such a, such an impact on your on your lives in so many ways. Yeah. I mean, even financially, which is something Financially was huge, but yeah, huge. You know, the outside looking in again, you wouldn't think that, would you? Because yeah. if, you, if you'll excuse my naivety, yeah. you look at two very successful people that have been in the public eye since mm. the age of, well, pre-20s, in yeah. both your cases, and you just assume loaded. Yeah, Don't you? You just kind of think you must have all the money you'll ever need. No, but after, but, you know, when this in is that changing. position, when we were in that position, after five years of not doing anything, yeah. um, it's difficult. And then it was difficult. And know. I wasn't working. And Pepsi and Shirley weren't working because I just just didn't want to do it. No. I just lost interest. And uh, there was something about me that suddenly, when you've actually experienced living a life where you are on jets and you're flying, you realize what's real. Mm. And all the money and all the traveling, all I could think of was if we have to live in a flat, as long as I have Martin and he's alive, I didn't care about anything else. And so I, I guess the concept of having money and having to live off our money was just such a basic necessity that the, uh, you lose all that materialism. But other people are still looking at you yeah. as a materialistic person, you know, or oh, you must have the cars and this and that. But I ju we, we moved house. I just wanted to die. I just, I just mm. thought, I didn't know if Martin was going to die. And all I could think was, I've got two small children. How am I going to look? How are we going to survive without Martin? So we sold our house. And then I looked around the house at things that I could sell, thinking, I don't need those things anymore. They don't represent me. That's not who I am. Um, and it, it was testing. It's like I was being tested to see what really meant. 
See, I, you know, I think what it's another thing that we wanted to get across in the book is that, you know, we lead a, a really ordinary life. You know, Shirley and I and the kids. You know, we, we it may look extraordinary from the outside, but when you're inside our unit, it's really ordinary. Yeah, uh, and we're the same as everybody else. And and I think just because you're famous or you're a celebrity, uh, we're all the same. You yeah. know. Yeah. No, it's. I mean, it's. It's a. It's a very humbling story to read. And you know, mm. obviously, one of the things that's so clear is is your love and respect and the teamwork that you are. You know, the partnership that you are. I mean. Prior to the brain tumor, of course, you'd, you'd already had, you weren't sure if you were ever going to have babies. That's right. And, and that's a, a huge thing to, to kind of play on someone's yeah. mind as well. Yeah, you know, especially for a woman, because you feel that's your right. I mean, growing up as a young girl, you're always scared to get pregnant, thinking, oh, I would hate to get pregnant. And oh, she's that girl, we heard she's got pregnant. And it would kind of like, yeah, something you would fear. So when I did want, because I suffered from something called endometriosis. Mm. And I was told when I was diagnosed with it, it could affect you having children. So that was like an alarm going off. Could affect children. I remember coming home and saying to my we need to have children. He was like, oh, whoa, whoa, I'm not ready for children. I'm still in a band. I'm, I was I don't care. I'm still in a band. I'm not going to be here. I'm on tour. And he just couldn't imagine how would I cope with it, a baby. Yeah. It yeah. was so embarrassing. I know Shirley was in a terrible state, but it was so embarrassing to the point where <laughs> I went home to Shirley's mum one day. Shirley's mum looked at me. She said, Martin, have you tried? The wheelbarrow. I'm looking at thinking, what? <laughs> we don't have a wheelbarrow. You, you can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, but listen, Shirley was going through a terrible time. Yeah. And then, uh, and then, so we go off to St. Lucia, we get married, and uh, on the night we get married, Shirley conceives our little daughter. So impressed that you've been able to shine a light on it. Yeah. In fact, you've raised mm. so many kind of important issues in this book. and, and and, and actually the conclusion of the book I want to come on to in a moment. But, sure. but I'm going to share a, a sort of paraphrase of a poem with you that's just kind of, just talking to you now, it, yeah. it's making me think of it. You may already be aware of it. It's a Linda Ellis poem called The mm. Dash. Right. Are you familiar with it? No. Mm. It's about a man who's sitting in a graveyard looking at tombstones. Mm. And the whole ethos of it is, is it doesn't matter what year you were born or what year you died. It's that dash in between. Yeah. That's where you live. Oh, yes. And the phrase is, it matters not the houses, the cars, the cash, but it's how you live, love, and spend your dash. Mm. And when you were talking about what can I sell and don't care where we're living and all the rest of it, that's what matters. And mm. that's what you embody, actually. Yeah. And that's what your experiences have shown. Yeah. You know, mm. and actually you both allude to this in your conclusions about what you've yeah. learned from being together, etc. You know, it's, mm. it's, not, it's not about being handed this ticket to that or being in that show or being up on that stage mm. in front of those people. But it's, it's ego, you know, people are very caught up in their egos and I spot those people quickly and I run yeah. because I just can't bear anyone showing off about what they've done or what they own or, you know, it's not about that, it's who you are. Yeah. It's not what Let you, me what take you back have. just a second. Uh, this dash idea, love it. Isn't Absolutely it great? love it. Yeah. yeah. Who is the writer? Uh, Linda Ellis. Linda Ellis. So I, I discovered it because, look at that. well, it's it's the most joyful thing, and since I've learned about idea. it, well, there was this, there were these two Welsh rowers, two firefighters, yeah. mm. who rowed across the Atlantic, and they called themselves Team Atlantic Dash yeah. because they had decided they had they needed some time out. They mm. had been saving children and or not getting to fires fast enough, yeah. etc. And you, they'd seen a lot of horror in their lives, and then this poem came to their attention, and they realised that actually. They needed their dash to be fuller mm. than just 
the tragedies they were witnessing. Oh, I love that. Mm. It's really lovely. And, it's, yeah. and, and I, I mean, I got yeah. the privilege of meeting them when they when they had yeah. finished yeah, rowing, yeah. and they told me this poem, and I was just like, yeah. that was me changed yeah. forever. Yeah. The poem yeah. was wonderful, wonderful. So brilliant. We yeah. all need to have, I mean, the thing that Martin and I are abundant in is empathy. Right. We are real empaths. So, you know, and people who don't have that are kind of missing what life's about. Yeah because that is such a huge ingredient. It, it's, it's what connects you to everyone and everything. Now, if you want to hear more stories from Martin and Shirley Kemp, their book, It's a Love Story, is available to buy now. Now, after the break, I'm so excited to be able to say hello to Jason Isaacs as the movie star joins me next. Driven with Andy J on Talk Radio in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. My final guest this week here on Driven is Jason Isaacs, who stars in the new film Skyfire. Jason, so uh, how are you doing? You all right? You having a good day? Uh, well, my wife just made me work out brutally in front of the telly, which she took very much in her stride, and I feel like I've been run over by a truck. Uh, but apart from that, yeah, great. <laughs> Sounds like you're having Another a... day in lockdown. <laughs> I was going to say, it's a standard... Please tell me it was to Joe Wicks. That would make my day. No, no, it's not Joe. No, no, she's way beyond that. No, it's it's Olympic level masochism. Oh, no, gosh. she could do Joe Wicks in her sleep. <laughs> yeah, she's uh, during lockdown. I've turned myself into a blancmange. She's turned herself into a steel cut. Oh, it's so good to hear that, Jason, because I have just got colossal and and so yeah. old, so old. Lockdown. Well, I'm spending my entire. I spent six months in the kitchen. What else am I meant to do? I'm using all the props available, as any you know healthy actor would do. And uh, you know, it's important to have a clean out. And uh, so I, all the cupboards have been bare four or five times. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going for the Christian Bale. I, it's the Christian Bale approach. I just don't have a part to ally in yet. Well, it's the sort of, it's I'm the, it's the anti-Christian Bale, isn't it? Because he did, he went super thin for uh, The Machinist. Well, no, no, he's done both. He's done both. Oh, he's, he's done thin for The Machinist. Yeah. Uh, and he went big for uh, uh, American Hustle, I think it was called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping right. for the Les Dawson biopic to come up soon. <laughs> I'm for. Actually, enough, we rented Christian Bale's house this is before he had his Batman money uh, and he very sweetly he and his wife rented a house for myself my wife and our baby um, and his wife sent a message through her mum I think it is and said uh, listen feel free to eat anything treat it like your own home eat anything you like you find in the house except he just done the machinist so there wasn't even salt there oh, there was nothing there was some protein powder which is what I think he lived on for about a year oh. um so th thanks very much for all the food. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> Protein powder and just vials of tears. From yeah. <laughs> as he walked around weeping around the house going, this is no fun. But what a film. No, I <laughs> I admire, no, listen, he, I admire anybody who can, with that level of discipline, apart from the fact he's a very good actor, but I, I just can't. Uh, I, nowadays, hopefully, they can do that stuff with the computer. Should you need to see your <laughs> spine from the front, uh, you don't actually need to lose that much weight. Too darn right. I hear you. I love I think this is wonderful. Brilliant. Um, Jason, I was going to do an official intro and everything else, but I feel like we could just dive in. What do you fancy? Do you want the, do you want the full range? I thought we had dived in. No, well. no I, whatever you like. I don't care. It's, all the rules have changed in lockdown. I'm taking sweatpants off for seven months. You know, there's no... All, all, all the old rules have fallen apart. Amazing. It's so, I'm so pleased as well. I must admit, I am wearing jeans today, mainly because of you. I, you know, I usually you're dressed up. I have dressed up. You went got, formal. It's Jason Isaacs, for goodness' sake! I can't be in a onesie the whole time. I'm talking to a legend. You know what? what how dare I? You know, you're talking to a legend. Yeah, it is odd when I work with someone and I, I feel like I'm working with a peer and something, and then they go, 
oh, I've been watching you since I was in kindergarten. And you go, oh, for Christ's sake, don't remind me how old I am. Uh, yeah, you, you require legend status by just still being standing after decades, I think. So you just got to not disappear. Still, so uh, I am now introduced as veteran actor often, and I go, veteran? How dare you? Because I feel, of course, on the inside, like I'm 12 years old. Not just because we all do, but because actors in particular need to keep the child alive in them. So that. yes, don't don't use a word like legend. It makes me feel, it makes me want to vomit down the throat. I will I will avoid. <laughs> well, I mean, in fact, I'm not going to bother with an intro then because I think everything we've done so far is lovely. I just want to keep chatting to you. Do you know I was? That's I all was... we've got time for today. <laughs> I'll tell you what I was going to do, Jason. I was going to do an intro that involved me doing something you probably get everywhere, which is, and now it's time for me to say hello to Jason Isaacs because you know. You do. You know what? Well, I love people doing that, not because uh, I like to hear my name, but because what it's doing is reminding people that there is this podcast out there, which I've been an addict of for, you know, over a decade. Uh, and it's, it's really a tribute to Mark and Simon. If you translate that, it sounds like it's not. It's saying, I'm a fan of Mark Kermode and Simon Mayer's podcast, and I am a fan. Yes. Not only is that awesome, funny enough, but of Mark's film recommendations, because I haven't been locked down for this long. Uh, I'm trying to work out what to watch when I'm uh, collapsed on the couch and everyone's gone to bed. And it's invariably, I turn to my memory of what Mark has said to watch or not watch, except when he goes fully off piece and recommends some Iranian, you know, dubbed documentary. But, uh, but apart from that, he, he has exquisite taste. And it's very hard to find tastemakers that you agree with. And uh, he's one. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very So, yeah, do whatever intro you like. I, I don't you want know, to do uh, one now. I'm so happy with our chat. Good. I just want no. us to keep chatting. Because, you know, mind you, I've got Excellent. to ask you, while we're talking about films that you've been watching in lockdown, right? So I've got to yeah. ask you about your movies, because there are certain films that if I had been in them, I would be constantly watching on repeat. But now with the excuse of lockdown, <laughs> it's even better. <laughs> I don't know. Well, do you listen back to your own radio programmes often as well? Is that what you do for the entertainment? Do you know, that's a fair shout. I No, I don't. I can't stand it. I don't watch my films. It's ridiculous. The shame of it is, on the odd occasion, so my daughter's, uh, at least my youngest one who's still at home, the other one's at now, but, you know, asks for some steering. She thinks she's interested in the world of film and wants to work in it. And I'm trying not to put her off by showing her things that are kind of worthy in black and white. So I'm trying to find fun things. And just occasionally there's a film of mine I think she might enjoy, but of course they're ruled out. My kids don't want to watch me in a film. It's ridiculous with their dad prancing around, putting a funny voice on in costumes. So, um, uh, yeah, so no, my films don't get aired in my house. The only thing I do occasionally go to a premiere, which is in the olden days, and nowadays I get sent a screen uh, screening link. Uh, and I have, funny enough, so we're supposedly today talking about Skyfire, this uh, volcano disaster action movie, which I haven't seen. Really? I have to, yeah, I haven't seen. Uh, I think there was a link sent to someone somewhere, but I lost it. I went and junk mail on it. And I didn't get it. And then I was kind of rather enjoying the fact that I've been publicizing it for a week without having seen it. Uh, it's, it's, a novel, it's a novel experience. Have so you if seen you've seen it, you I, can tell me all about I it. I saw it yesterday. I saw it yesterday. Oh, there you uh, go. Shall I tell you about it? I feel like I should tell you about yes. it. Because I'd like, <laughs> I'd like to tell you about it. So it's a Chinese disaster action movie, right? Now bear with, because you know that bit. Yes, I knew that much. <laughs> you okay. know that bit. Because I was there. <laughs> well, it starts with a race against an erupting volcano, and it kind of never slows down. And here's where I... Wait, I'm... the volcano blows up. You're kidding me. <laughs> what I remember is I, what I remember is I built a resort in a volcano, and I've taken all the best advice. As we hear nowadays, constantly, I'm led by the science, and yes. uh, and all, and it's going to be one of the great money makers and uh, eighth wonders of the world. You're telling me it goes wrong, the volcano blows up. <laughs> I can't. 
I can't believe it. Here's the glory of it, Jason. Whilst I was watching it, I was like, hang on a sec. This is like the volcano version of Jurassic Park. And you're the Richard Attenborough. I can't believe you suck at it. I can't. Well, thank you very much indeed. Because over the last week, I've been called a villain. What do you like playing the villain many times? And I'm thinking, how many people asked Lord Dickey what it was like being playing the villain in Jurassic Park? No one. Because he had a walking stick. That's the only reason. That's it. He That's built it. that thing. It all went wrong and all the people got eaten, for God's sake. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, exactly let's not speak of the dead. You play Harris. Well, it's Jack Harris, but none of the, none of the Chinese yes, characters you. ever call you Jack. It's always just Harris, and it's constantly referred to as Harris. And it basically... You're yeah, a- at least sounds like my name. You want to hear what I, how I butchered their name. I'm afraid my Chinese was not up to scratch. Well, I remember that, that much as well. I found that really a really interesting take, Jason, because you did, you did attend some Chinese, which was fantastic. <laughs> And, but the, <laughs> no, it's, it you're was, clearly you're clearly not a Mandarin speaker. Well, you'd be because surprised. Because the crew was doubled over. My wife is oh, half really? Chinese, so I, you know, I, I can. Okay. I, I can fence a little bit, not a lot, tiny bit. That's impressive. Very impressive. I mean, if we're talking a tiny bit, you know, it's not. Well, I've just, so I tell you what. Actually, what happened was I would get there. There was no Chinese in the original script, and I get there, and Simon West, the director, would say, "Actually, you know, it'd be great if when they come in here, you say, hello, are you doing? Sit down. Would you like a drink?'" And they tell me the Mandarin for it, and I try it, and they go. Or maybe let's just let, let's just go for come in and have a drink, and then I try and they go. Maybe let's just go for sit down, yeah. and then I would say it. And as you know, anyone who does speak Mandarin uh, or Cantonese will know that you know it's Chinese is a completely obviously a completely different language, but it works in a different system, which is of tones. Either yes. a tone that goes up, a tone that goes down, starts high or starts low. So I would say what I thought was exactly what I've been told to say, and instead of saying. Uh, sit down and have a drink, I'm saying, oh, your pants are on fire, or what is And uh, they, they'd all go, no, that's not going to work. Why don't you just gesture? So whatever's left in the film is as, mu- as little as they could make it, given how badly I was butchering it. And, and the shame, I thought I was a good mimic. And, uh, and I have, you know, I speak French and Spanish and various bits of other languages. And uh, no, I, I failed dismally. Well, it there doesn't show. I you. mean, it is, it's an interesting side to the film where, you know, 90% of the film is obviously Chinese and, and we're doing it with subtitles. And then the lion's share of your sort of scenes, you get to speak English and, and you know, the subtitles disappear. But do you know what? I was thinking about this in terms of are we as the UK, are we ready for a film that's so heavily subtitled? And, of course, it got me thinking to, you know, Boon Joo Ho's films, oh. you know, Snowpiercer, Parasite, etc. Of course we're ready. Go back further than that. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah. Yeah. You know, of course we're ready. We're ready for film. By the way, I mean, I, just, I hate being a snake or salesman. And I hate telling people to watch whatever. I mean, I just, it is what it is. Make your own mind up. But actually, but the notion of just not thinking about the real world and going diving in deep into an old-fashioned disaster movie with nothing but chases and exploding things uh, is incredibly enticing to me, who's been stuck in the suppressing news cycle for the last seven or eight months. So uh, I'm looking forward to watching it. It's fun. It's fun to watch. And you know what? As you haven't watched it, you won't know this either, Jason. But the end frame, and I'm not giving anything away, not spoiling any of the plot here. But what's interesting... (laughs) You're about to tell me the end frame. You're not giving anything away, surely. Come on. Without giving anything away, I promise. Just before the credits roll, okay, they have put a dedication up. Have you seen this? You know, some films have been doing this recently, and I think this is quite cute. So the last frame before the credits roll reads, What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. To all the warriors who fight fearlessly through COVID-19, pandemic and hard times wow. for us and everyone who has faith in love and hope that's pretty great that's pretty great i like that oh that, that's good good for them i mean i'd say i thought you know, 
and obviously the experience for me was weird because I couldn't understand anything anybody was saying, and it's normally a very social experience for me, and it was the opposite because yeah. I couldn't. But I, but it meant that I got much closer to uh, Simon West, a wonderful director, who's done you know Con Air and uh, Lara Croft and Expendables, and just is is a master of kind of the giant uh, epic set piece. Um, and he's a lovely man. It wouldn't surprise me if that came from him. He's a very kind man, which is, you know, I've worked with other <laughs> big exploding things directors, uh, and they are often big exploding people. Uh, and uh, he was not that. He was, he, was, he was a warm, kind man, which hey, the Chinese crew appreciated because it turns out that when they make fully Chinese films, this qualifies as a Chinese film, but it has some Western people making it. But the fully Chinese productions that they work on, these even the big stars, they work seven days a week until the project is finished. Wow. So if they do a six-month job, they don't have a day off, including the crew members and the makeup and the grips. And, and uh, so they were stunned to have Sundays off. They, they felt that Christmas arrived early. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't surprise me if that dedication came from Simon. That's very nice. It's, it's just a nice kind of, you've had all this action, you've had all the explosions and everything else, and then there's this kind of like, we're all in this together kind of moment. And I think that's yeah, really yeah, cute. Yeah. I like that. Because there are some very touching moments. I mean, it's difficult because you haven't seen it yet. So <laughs> you don't quite know what Oh, I was about. there. By the way, I was there when we made it, and I did witness other people's scenes, and I read the script. I read the translation script, at least in English. Um, so I know, for instance, that Chinese films, there's a slightly different, obviously a very different culture, and they have a different culture of storytelling too. So uh, they like very heavily emotional scenes, particularly with parents and children, right. which is the kind of, you know, at the heart of the fabric of society. So I know that there are some big father-daughter scenes, and that's, you know, that's meant to be the narrative spine of the thing. Yes. Um, so it's not, in fact, funny enough, it's much less so about the spectacular stunts in some Western films where, you know, the Fast and Furious films are essentially a magnificent two-hour car chase. Uh, I know that they were feeling about this film, although it's packed wall to wall with big stunts and set pieces. It's really a, it's a father daughter story and a husband wife story and a boyfriend girlfriend story. They're, they're huge on um, heavily lent into emotions. So I'd read those scenes. I haven't seen them played. I, I do remember that I thought the Chinese acting style slightly different from Western acting style. Well, actually, no, not that. Sorry. The way that Chinese people, I, I can't be generic, but the, the people I was working with expressed themselves emotionally was different from how Western people express themselves emotionally. And I presume that will come across on the screen. Yeah, but you... Is that, still... does, that, does that tally with your own uh, extended family? Is that something you've seen? Um, it depends if we're around a dinner table or not. Right. If there's food involved, everything goes out the window. There are no rules. You know? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I, th I think um, that's as much as I can risk saying. <laughs> But yes, yeah, yes, no, I, I completely agree. Now, Jason, I do need your help. And I'm sure this Go is something that you've been asked a couple of times. By the way, I, I need to rush you. I've got uh, something to do at eight o'clock tonight and nothing till then. I don't know how long your show is, <laughs> but we can only talk for seven and a half hours. <laughs> In that case, we can maybe make this work. There are two things yeah. that that just have to continue, come back, return. I don't know what the what the terminology is. One of them is a film. One of them's a TV show. I'm sure you can already guess okay. what they are. You're a star of both. And they, they, there just needs to be more of them, okay? I'm talking about the OA and Event Horizon, okay? We need more Event Horizon. Wait. We need more OA. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. Well, uh, anyone who's seen Event Horizon, will, uh, if there is any more, uh, I'm going to spend a lot of time in makeup well. every day. Uh, <laughs> given that I ended up as a dog's dinner. Well, yes, um, but we could go before. We could do a prequel. That's yes, very, no, we could do a prequel. That's true. Right that's true. Uh, the OA, I, I don't want to start weeping on screen. There are, there are things that, you know, genuine things in the world to be upset about. But, uh, you know, when it, creatively, I've been doing this job for, uh, you know, hundreds of years. I've done 
literally hundreds of stories, and I, I it's I haven't come across anything like it ever in my life. I just thought it was such fresh and original and human, uh, imaginative storytelling. And it's it's utterly brilliant. Are you still there, Jason? You've just gone a hold of you emotionally. Uh, sorry, it just grabs hold of people. Uh, and me emotionally in ways that I had I'd never come across. And I, I was, I mean, we were all heartbroken when it was uh, cancelled. It was cancelled, oddly, not because it was unpopular. It was massively popular. Yeah. But Netflix, uh, those streamers, they have different priorities and different models. I mean, they're about building subscribers. I think it had a massive audience that wasn't growing but was incredibly faithful. I, I don't really know why. I'm not in those meetings. I don't envy them their jobs. But I do know that... Wherever I go in the world, that's what happens when you're on uh, one of these big streaming platforms. It's global immediately. Uh, people want to talk about it. They don't want to, you know, it's not that they want to selfie or to say they enjoyed it. They all want more of it, yeah. and they want to talk about how it affected them and what it meant to them. And you know, that's how rare is it that the story does that to people? Uh, it, it's beautiful. If anyone listening hasn't it, just because you got cancelled, there's not a reason to watch those two groundbreaking seasons of television. Absolutely I, I right. Think. No, they are. It's, it's phenomenal. Edge of your seat. Utterly brilliant. I've watched I've watched both seasons several times. It's that good. I mean, and it, it really is brilliant. And I've got a lot to do. I make a point of watching right. VOA regularly. I no, think listen, when I sat down, I, I was going to do the press bit. And by the way, this isn't me uh, self-promoting, as you all know, because you've seen it. I'm not in it that much. It, uh, I just think it's a magnificent piece. And all, a lot of the people who were unknown actors before, or some of them hadn't acted at all, are amazing, but what's really amazing is the story they choose to tell and how they choose to tell it. Yes. But I, I had to sit down and do the press, uh, you know, do a press junket, as I say, like wall to wall interviews one day, and I hadn't seen it yet because we'd only recently finished it. And they sent me a link, and it was the night before, and you, know, you want to get some sleep, you want to look a bit, you know, look nice, be fresh and stuff. And nine o'clock at night, I clicked just to just to watch it for five minutes, get a sense of the pace of it and the music when I hadn't heard. And at five o'clock in the morning, I finished watching. I all through one go, and I was an emotional wreck. I bet. And I went to do the press about two hours later, and I was a little bit like, you know, someone in the Moonies. I just couldn't. I was just raving and ranting, uh, and wondered whether I'd gone too far because I was tired and you know, uh, vulnerable. And on reflection, I didn't go too far. I still think it's uh, it's truly magnificent. But one of the reasons, and if anyone creative is listening to this, one of the reasons is. There was no collaboration. I hear you hear film, television, whatever. It's a very collaborative medium. They wrote that by themselves yeah. on spec. They, they spent a year writing it. They researched it everywhere. Nothing about it is cynical. It's from them. And they arrived, and everybody who read it from the different television networks went, wow, yeah, go and make that. And so it doesn't look like, uh, you know, it doesn't bear fingerprints of people who are trying to squeeze it into a traditional box. It is entirely their story. Jeez, don't get me started on the OA. I, honestly, I could do hours on it. I think it's so beautiful. Well, tell, and, uh, tell me I something, miss making Jason, because it. It, it does end, you know, the season two finishes with this incredible cliffhanger. Ah, this don't li- tell people. No, yeah, yeah, I'm not yeah. just going to say incredible cliffhanger. I'm not going to say what happens, of course. So, so I read that cliffhanger. I went, you're out of your mind. And I phoned them immediately. They went, don't do that. You're going to blow it. There's an expression in television, you're going to jump the shark, meaning you're going to go so far and do something so ridiculous you can't get back. And they said, come for dinner. I went for dinner and they explained what season three was going to be. Oh, you uh, My jaw. Have you heard, I had to scrape my jaw happen? off the ground. Yeah. Oh. Their ideas were so brilliant. Because what they've done, as opposed to what happens on most television, I don't want to pull the curtain back too far for your listeners, but mostly when people get a television program commissioned and it goes well and they get to two, they go, bloody hell. Now what we're going to do, and they improvise yeah. some structure that makes it look like they had this planned all along, but they didn't. They're winging it. Well, these guys, Zal and Britt, uh, Britt Marling and Zalbeck Langwich, they had planned all five seasons. It was a, it was a jigsaw, a tapestry that they had already built. So they knew, and they told me, 
And, and I arrived at the dinner going, you're a bunch of idiots, let this you know, old man impart some of his wisdom. And I left thinking, uh, I'm in the presence of genius, and, and if we get to do that, then I don't ever need to again. And unfortunately, we didn't get to do it. There you go. But I, do but, wonder, uh, but I am still working. I think there might be life in it yet, you know, Jason. There's such a sort of following. I would say cult following, but it's not cult, because cult, cult implies... No, no, it's number. huge. There's a huge following. And we know that Netflix has got this weird two-season policy. There's lots and lots of great shows that get to t- the second season. It's, and well, it's stop. very, it's much more expensive uh, for them to make a season three of anything than it is the first two seasons. Yes. That's how they deal with destruction. Yes. Um, but I don't, think, I, I don't think there's life in it yet. I think Dan and Pritt were crushed even more than me by, by this dream being shattered and I, and I don't know that they could revisit it although the way we left it well no uh, for those people watching it the way we left it we could go back to it at any point you could but I mean it's a, it's a humongous oh I've lost you again Jason you keep coming uh, which has these self-consciously wacky things in it has kind of strange elements of the you know the smoking man and uh, you know little people and whatever uh, it seems like David is just going what can I do that's weird well, although there are weird things in the OA, none of them come from cynicism. They all come from something completely authentic about the world that they believe that they're plugged into, that they're reading about. And uh, I don't think you'll ever watch a show that is as unlittle uh, as, as that. Uh, so uh, it, it's just a, it's an effort on their part that I don't know that they can revisit. I think it, it was a magical moment of its time. Well, um, I'm going to live but, in hope but who knows? that there's some billionaire out there that can buy the rights from Netflix and fund season three, four, five. That's what I'd, I want to see knows? if it's finished. I really want to see if it is so good. It's so good. I'm just thinking about you not sharing your movies with okay. your kids, Jason. Yeah, we need Godfather 3. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah, well. You know, when they keep trying to get out and they keep pulling back in. I watched Godfather 1 and 2 with my kids the other day and uh, my daughter questioned how fantastic it was. And she said, should we watch Godfather 3? And I went, no, it no. never got made. It's just a fiction. <laughs> yeah. It's 5G mark. Bill Gates wants a chip in you. No, it's, there's never, it's, don't, you can't find a copy. It never happened. Uh, so, uh, who knows? Let's you, maybe nice to leave it on a point, leave the audience wanting more, that's for sure. Steering them on a safe ground there, Jason. But, but hang on, does this mean that you haven't let your children watch the Harry Potter films, for example? You know, I mean, you're... You're a big part of those, so obviously they'd be. I am. They don't. Yeah, they don't. They watched. They read the books uh, when they were younger, and they liked them a lot. Uh, and then they watched the films once. But it's you know, they know me. They're, they're watching Dad in a wig. Yeah. It's weird, and and I think I've ruined it for them. Whereas their peers watch them and like them. Uh, they probably at some point some of their peers might have expressed an interest in their dad being Lucy Malfoy. At which point, I'm sure that both my daughters would have steered the conversation 180 degrees in the opposite direction. They would much rather that I was, uh, you know, in the state. This is this is not what I want to hear, Jason. What I want to hear. Well, what is the social status? Okay. <laughs> what I yeah. want to hear is that you know they've they've asked you to wear the wig and collect them from school in it. You know that's what you want. So so much not. They actually. I, so we're driving uh, my 15 year old to school and back at the moment because uh, I'm rather COVID cautious. Uh, other parents uh, have different standards, but anyway, we're driving because we can. And um, a few weeks ago, or when it was last term, I, I was parked outside the school as opposed to around the corner just because that's where the parking spot was and she came out of school my daughter I could see her chatting to her mates over the road and I got out of the car and I went and just whistled I went hey Ruth just to let her know where I was and I watched her bend for double turn purple across the road and steam I think (laughs) 
I, I don't think they want me to pull up uh, in front of them in costume. Maybe they'd rather I was just... Uh, they'd rather get an Uber, frankly. Uh, but there you go. They're going to put up with it. Yeah, such is no, life. It's all that. The people do think... If, if people ever do come up in the street, it's very rare. British people... Uh, a, I'm not that famous. And B, British people generally don't bother you. But... Uh, but now, boy. Actually... The funniest question you could ever ask my children. That I, I think they're going to projectile vomit and they hold it back out of politeness. Oh, no, man. they don't like me being an actor. They don't like me being anything. They just they aspire to orphan status, both of them, as all good teenagers should. <laughs> but presumably they like you being just dad, though, right? You're a good dad, I assume. They like uh, not having to clear up. They like getting lifts places. They like it if I can find things they can't find. Uh, the one at college likes money. Uh, to pay for things which is out. They're, they're great kids, though. You know, they're wonderful kids, and uh, they have that healthy distance from their parents that is a biological predetermination that is so annoying and upsetting for those of us helicopter parents of our generation who think we're going to be our children's best friends. There is some point at which the tiger cub eats the mother, and <laughs> that is exactly the stage that uh, both of my children are healthily going through. So oh, it's no. fine. You're crushing things but, for but me, Jason. You're crushing things. My eldest is seven. My youngest is three. And I'm like, this is a really, really, that. really great time. I'm loving this. Yeah, it's nonsense. It's, it's total nonsense. Uh, but it's good. Okay. Okay. Well, well, we'll take that. We'll take that. Um, Jason, I've had a look on the old IMDB. And according to that, you have 11 new shows currently in pre or post production. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know exactly what's there. First of all, you make films or television series uh, uh, often, and uh, they don't get finished or come out, or, or they come out and they disappear. So I don't know which of those 11 that's true. But I have a bunch of stuff I'm hoping to make. Uh, during COVID times, and it's, to put it mildly, uh, and uh, there are some things you just can't shoot. They just, it, they'd be too expensive. And, uh, yeah. Uh, impractical um, and then there's things that are in an edit I mean there's a film I just found out uh, got into Sundance but I, I'm not allowed to say because the Sundance list isn't officially out that I think is made Jason I keep, I keep an acting masterclass you keep cutting out oh, for some reason Jason yeah. do, you, do you keep losing your connection by any chance oh do you know what the Wi-Fi ah, I'm on the wrong Wi-Fi network I've set two up. Okay, wait, I can do this. There were just a few holes in the Sundance anecdote, I'm afraid. Hello? Oh, it seems to have lost okay, it. I'm coming on to a new... Wait, I'm coming on to a new Wi-Fi network. Oh. Okay, I'm now on a better Wi-Fi network. Hurrah! You can, in fact, go, go over anything you like. Um, yeah, I saw there's a bunch of stuff, including there's a film... But I just found out, got into Sundance, so I'm not allowed to say what it is until they officially made their announcement, that I spent the entire time having to pinch myself going, remember to act, because I was looking at the best acting I've ever seen in my life, by far, the best acting close-up I've ever seen. Um, but will it get bought? Will it be seen by people? Will it be, you know, I've been to Sundance seven times with eight films, every one of which got a standing ovation at this 3,000-seat theatre called The Eccles, where they premiere things, and each time I thought, okay, don't get overexcited. You've been here before, and I couldn't help it. I think this this little film is going to conquer the world. It's just such a it's just brilliant, and uh, only two of them ever came out, and one of them lasted longer than a weekend. So, uh, no, what it is is, I mean, when you get to my veteran age, you go, 
I'm going to enjoy the journey. Actually, I've felt for decades now. I'm going to enjoy the journey because I have no control. And uh, can't, expectations will just ruin the experience. So I was in a film called Hotel Mumbai a couple of years ago. Yes, you were. It's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant, beautiful film. And uh, when it was shooting, it was um, Harvey Weinstein's, uh, you know, it was going to be the film he championed for Oscars that year. And he put money into it, he bought it. And then, of course, uh, his world rightfully collapsed in on him. Uh, and so our film disappeared into the asset sale and didn't come out for a couple of years uh, until they could extract it from that. So, you know, if I'd been making that film thinking, oh, we'll be at the Oscars next year, I wouldn't have had the extraordinary experience I had in India and Australia with, uh, with all those actors. And, and so I've learned to uh, just enjoy the fact that, I'm, you know, I mean, that, frankly, I'm be too pretentious here. Isn't that what we all need to do right now? Who knows what's coming around the corner? Who's what this winter's going to be like? Who knows about these vaccines? Uh, who knows what kind of economy and what kind of society we're going to have to rebuild out of this? But one thing we do know is if it's not in your control, let's try and in, enjoy uh, and be in the moment with our families. If we've got them, if you're lucky enough to have a roof over your head and food in the fridge, you know, we need to find how to be grateful for uh, what we have. So I'm grateful anytime I get to make a tell a good story and enjoy it. And then I just let go. Maybe you'll get to see it. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll find it in the remainder bit of Parentland, you know, for a fee one day on DVD. It doesn't really matter because that's my job is not selling things, despite this conversation. You know, my, my job is uh, making them. And uh, I'm incredibly lucky that I get to do that. Jason, this is so interesting to hear you speak like this because what you have said echoes. I've recently spoken to Ian McKellen, Nigel Havers, Celia Imray. They have all said almost identical the same to you. In fact, Nigel Havers describes himself as a, as a letterbox actor. He doesn't worry about the parts. It's whatever comes through the door and he'll do it and he'll enjoy it. So long as it looks fun, he's going to do it. And right. he's sort of not I'm curious about their attitude right now. So there, are, there is work coming in. There are people offering jobs right now. And I've been on a couple of sets and I've been shooting some sex education and I've just done this lovely film in, in, in Hungary. But uh, I can't pretend that it's a comfortable experience. You know, it's all managed risk. The industry is doing its best to make them safe, these films. Uh, and sometimes there are people who test positive. They're not at work the next day or their whole department's not at work the next day. And, you know, much like schools, I think, in universities. And, you know, there's a decision every time about whether you shut the whole thing down or you just, you know, ask a whole bunch of people not to come to work for a while. Um, but I'm curious what our actors and actors of different ages feel, what Ian McKellen feels about going to a set or Nigel Haywood's about going to a set. I, I am I'm conflicted and confused. You know, something comes through my letterbox. <laughs> Do people have this letterbox anymore? In email inbox. And I read it, I think, well, that'd be nice. Should I? I don't know. If, I, if you're not broke, should I go and be in a working environment, whereas everybody else is being encouraged to work from home if they can. Yes, that's right. Um, so, I, you know, if I'm talking to any of them, ask them how they feel about going to a set, because I'd right. like to know whether I'm a, you know, whether I'm making sensible decisions or not. Well, the interesting, I, I should have mentioned Miriam Margulies as well in there, because she had a lot to say about it as well. She was very, very interesting on it. And uh, Miriam Margulies has a lot to say, full stop, <laughs> about that and anything else. <laughs> she She's does. not shy. I've known Miriam a long time. She's <laughs> maybe the, the most opposite of shy person I've ever come across. Yeah, she's a, she's a force of nature, that's for sure. But but the interesting thing is, is, Jason, you know, I, I don't mean to pen you in with them because you're several decades younger. You know, obviously... Thank you very much for mentioning it. I, <laughs> I was waiting for that. Yeah, well, you know, of course. I went into a shop in America a while, obviously pre-pandemic, uh, a Best Buy, I think it was, and the guy was, oh my God, oh my God. That is, what is the, what are the odds, man? I, I can't believe it. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry. And he goes, no, I was just I was just watching you, Mr. Dalton. I was just watching you on TV. And I went, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Dalton. I mean, he's a wonderful actor. 
I'm considerably younger than him. He went, well, not in the movie I was watching. And I went, okay, fair enough. You can have that. He might have seen Bond, you know, in which case... Exactly, yeah. yeah. That's fine, probably the same age. Yeah, Yeah. there you go. Yeah, that'll be fine. That'll be fair. Yeah, but I mean, you know... You're not sixty, so you don't have the you don't have the sort of super high risk. I think it's sixty, isn't it? Sixty, well, seventy, eighty. I'm fifty-five. Yes, you know, it's, um, I've done a lot of bad things in my life, and uh, I'm not not, not enormous. I'm in my fifties, and ah, what are the odds? Like, I jumped out of a plane. I love jumping out of a plane. I looked at the odds of you know the parachute not opening. I thought, yeah, okay, I'll take the risk. <laughs> um, you know, and I do a bunch of stunts when I can do them, and I, you know, there's probably things I do that there, there's, you know, there's some risk. But when you think, oh yeah, yeah, but you're in your fifties. I mean, if you've got it and you got sick, you know, you've only got a one in twenty chance of dying. If you go, or you know, you've got a one in fifteen chance. Of dying, and you go, ah, yeah. I don't know about those odds. I'm not sure. Yeah, um, yeah probably all right. Russian roulette, probably all right. One in fifteen, one in twenty, is it one in fifty? I don't know. Uh, but generally, <laughs> they're not odds. I'm that comfy with. No. Um, so I am more cautious than most of my, uh, even my, you know, peer group here about, uh, you know, well, the people being in the house, which isn't allowed now, or people being in the garden, and it's generally standing away from people and wearing masks. And uh, and I, I'm a bit of an outlier in my social circle. The people who are not taking it uh, tremendously seriously, you know, they're not they're not behaving with the kind of anxiety I think everyone should behave with. In which case, we'd stop the spread of the Yeah. No, you're absolutely right, Jason. And, but the interesting thing is, obviously, you're you're being cautious about being on film sets, which makes complete sense. I completely respect and understand that. And yes, well, I don't know if I'm being cautious. I'm going to the film set, but I'm just being upset when I'm there. Right. <laughs> it's just probably not the best attitude. Well, I mean, it, I'm unless... there, but but trying not to enjoy it. Does that make sense? No. Well, yes, it does. Yes, it does. I guess if your character is a bit of a worrywart, but then you know that's. Yeah. that's that's not the case in sex education, is it? Which is also terrific, by the way. And really so much fun. It's a very good show. Actually, what's amazing about sex education is how much sex education it has put in the world. How much teenagers now know and are more comfortable talking about every shade and variety of, of sex and sexual problems. Uh, you know, what, what tremendous, not why they set out to make the show at all. It's not any kind of public service yeah. program, but uh, the extraordinary change it's, it's heralded in, in teenagers' engagements with sex and probably adults as well. Uh, and it's a laugh. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very cool set. But I was on there and I was on a set, you know, a kind of old-fashioned romance, romance, I don't know what it is, uh, just a lovely film in Hungary. And, you know, they're testing everybody two or three times a week and they're trying to keep distance with ventilator. But no question that it would be safer <laughs> just to stay at home and watch the telly. Yeah. Obviously, it's safer to do that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm curious what other actors are doing and other people who have, you know, a job they don't have to go to. Because, you know, some people have to go to work and uh, I hope that they manage to keep it safe as possible. But we don't. So uh, our industry is plowing on regardless. And, and we're regarded as essential workers, which I love. I love the fact that governments around the world have acknowledged that storytelling is an essential business. Uh, I don't know how the doctors and nurses feel about it. There we are. Yeah. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? And yet theatres are closed, cinemas are closed. I understand why, because it involves people going to them. But, you know, it's... It's, it's such a confused message right now. I don't think anyone... Well, actually, that. you know what? I think everyone does understand, but they don't want to admit it. I mean, the government's don't want to admit it. The fact is, this is an airborne disease. Mm. You know, they used to... They used, and originally, they thought, oh, well, it's like some of these other diseases. It's large droplets that you cough and sneeze. And then they knew for quite a long time, no, no, it's very small droplets. They hang in the air for a long time. If you're in any non-ventilated space, you might get it off people. Mm. But the implications for that are terrible economically. It means don't let people be in a non-ventilated space together. Because at that point, you know, masks are a little bit of a help, just as well. But frankly, if you're in a a room that's contained and doesn't have a big 
flow through of air, in the end, it's not going to help you if someone else is infected. And that, that, that means everything should close. That means cinemas and theatres and shops and restaurants should all close scientifically. Economically, that's an entirely different thing. Yeah. So uh, people didn't want to say that, didn't admit that, and I don't blame them. But at this time when we've got a bunch of, I think, frankly, and I know you're probably not allowed to express a political opinion, but a bunch of woefully incompetent keystone cops in government whose decisions have been slow and poor and you know cover their own back, I even as really badly as they've done, I don't envy them their job. Or, and I'm not sure that there's anybody that would have done the job that much better. They would have been more transparent, maybe. And maybe they'd be more decisive. Some of the governments around the world have been. Because it's a terrible toss-up. What do you do when the only way really to stop the disease is to shut everything down everywhere? But if you do that, the other consequences are so dire also. They're, uh, they're stuck between rocks and hard places. And, and uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want their job, yeah, no, frankly, or even to play it. I'm with you to a degree, Jason. My my feeling is that actually they were doing okay with it until Dominic Cummings went and tested his eyes, you know, and then and then for me, yeah, they, yeah. they lost everything, you know, they lost all all public confidence, and and it all just went to pop. Well, but they also they weren't. That's absolutely true, and it's disgusting. It's be I was beggared belief. It was like a bad farce. Yeah. But on the other hand, a lot of people have known for a long time that that this thing hovers in the air for hours if breathed out and that you really should shut down everything that happens indoors where people mix. And that, that way you could just literally stop the yeah. spread of the disease. Yeah. And what you then do with that knowledge uh, is a tortuous decision that I wouldn't want to take. Uh, you know, I'm in an incredibly privileged position in that I'm not about to lose my house uh, and I can afford to keep buying food. You know, so, but many, many people aren't. So I understand why that the machine has to be kept rolling forward. Uh, but nonetheless, the science of it is really easy. Taiwan did it, and you know, New Zealand did it, and Australia mostly did it. And they just, you know, they they, they bit the bullet early on and tightly, and they locked everybody down. And when they have a big outbreak, it's three people. You know, the two of them are sisters, and one's called Brian. Like that's a big outbreak for them, yeah. and uh, that's just not where we are. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've been heavily invested in invested in. I've been watching telly and tweeting and social media and stuff about the American election, which has massive consequences for us and for the whole world and our children's. So Biden's going to get in there. Well, Biden doesn't have a magic wand. You know, it's a, it's a very, very impossible decision to make, even if you've got a totally compliant population. Yes. Let's say everybody in America and England would do whatever they were told, would actually distance, would actually wear a mask, would actually, you know, uh, isolate when asked to, and none of those things are true. Uh, even then, they're crippling decisions, but it turns out that there's a bunch of people that are uh, not necessarily out of economic necessity, because they think, nah, don't believe it. And, and there's nowhere to go neutrally for facts nowadays. They don't believe the science. They don't believe uh, that they're going to get sick. They don't believe that it spreads easily. And, uh, and they don't believe the vaccine. And I, uh, I despair at how we're going to move forward. And weirdly, to bring it around rather cheesily to uh, storytellers being essential workers, I think since nobody believes in neutrics anymore, one of the ways to touch people and reach people and change their minds is through narrative, through fiction. Yes. You step aside from yourself in your own political entrenchment and you go, well, I, I, that character and that person in that dilemma, I can see that. I buy that. I, I want to aspire to that. And that's one of the ways to change uh, people's minds and uh, help unify people. That's why stories are, are, are more important than one might think. Yes, absolutely. Well, maybe we need more people to watch Contagion then. I feel like I'm giving a graduation speech. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I must say, Sorry about that. you know, you've unfolded the sort of dilemma and the circumstances and the situations probably more eloquently than I've heard in the last, you know, seven, eight months. So kudos. I've to got you. no one to talk to. I'm at home. <laughs>
<laughs> well, you can call me anytime, Jason. You, you, well, can, so you can get me on the phone whenever you like. Um, Jason, look, well, this show is called Driven. It's it's about what drives celebrities and achievers, what gets oh. people out of bed in the morning, what makes people do something different, dare to be different, take on the world in a different way. So what is it that, that drives well, that's Jason? I've got no, I've literally got nothing to offer <laughs> in any of those areas. <laughs> uh, I'm here... I'm speaking to all the undriven people, undriven. Uh, I'm with you. Don't worry about it. I, I, there's nothing that drives me. I, you know, I, I guess economic necessity would drive me if I was broke, uh, but I'm not. And frankly, I feel like sometimes days, weeks, months go by where I'm just treading water. I know that when I feel best about myself, apart from the, you know, the central planks of uh, eating right and sleeping and you know, doing exercise, it's when I've got something I'm working towards. And it doesn't matter what it is, learning a song on the piano, you know, putting a bunch of shelves up, uh, writing a book, it doesn't matter how, you know, grandiose or, or, you know, mostly the things that make me feel like, not life is worth living, but uh, make me not feel like I'm just given up and just being blown by the face or when I'm of service, when I've got something to do that, uh, that is not self-serving. Uh, and so this, amazingly, this last six months has given me a million opportunities to be of service. Uh, which for someone lazy is great because it's all mostly Zoom work, you know, but uh, hosting charity galas or helping do fundraising or, or uh, because charities' income has dried up. And then during the last seven, eight months, whatever it is, uh, the need has grown exponentially. And so we're food, our local food bank, which is serving 100 meals, you know, uh, a week is doing 1,000 a day or whatever. You know, the, the numbers are, are through the roof for the Red Cross who I work for and, and other people. So um, what drives me is, to try and do better and not do better as in make myself grander or richer or, or you know, or, or happier or whatever, uh, to try and assuage the responsibility. I think that comes with privilege and I'm privileged. I do this stupid job that I love that does something enjoyable in the world and I enjoy doing it and I get well paid for it. And, and that comes, uh, I think the responsibility to make sure that I'm leaving the world a better place than, uh, I found it. And so, it comes easily to me because I'm asked all the time to do things and I just say yes. I mean, if I had one, one tip, dangerous tip to give my children, I'd go say yes. Say yes to everything and then regret the things you do. Don't, don't regret the things you didn't bother doing or you were scared of doing it or be cautious about. So, uh, yeah, I have no pearls of wisdom. My pearl of wisdom is, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a lazy slob and uh, uh, I grab any opportunity when it comes at me because uh, I know that I'm not. Uh, I won't create the initiative. So when people open a window, open a door, I dive through it. Wow! Because I'm not, I'm not building any doors. <laughs> I would say that's a a pretty excellent pearl of wisdom, anyway, Jason. And it's, I must say, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. It's been a very far-reaching conversation. I was expecting just a quick chat about some so videos, but I've really loved it. Thank you so much for your company today. It's a pleasure. It's great to talk to you too. All right. Really. Appreciate I'll talk it. to you soon. Take care. I'm here tomorrow. <laughs> I'm here all week. Get away. you again. All right. Brilliant. All right. All the best, Jason. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Driven with Andy J on Talk Radio in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Welcome to Driven Chat. I am joined now by a lady who has made me laugh to the point where my lungs have almost collapsed on countless occasions. It is the magnificent actor, Bryony Corrigan. How are you doing, Bryony? I'm pretty good, thanks. How are you? Uh, well, I'm, I'm kind of, I struggle to look at you now because I have laughed at you so often. Of course, we've seen you in The Goes Wrong show on the BBC. I've seen you in your various different iterations in 
the, the theatre versions, the mischief theatre versions, Peter yeah. Pan goes wrong, the play that goes wrong, etc., etc. And I can't stop literally crying or wheezing with laughter. And you are a major, major factor. You've got most of the best bits Aww. in the TV show. Do you think so? Yeah, totally. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, it's a lot of fun doing them. I, I've had a great time. But to hear that I'm uh, your favourite, sorry, is, uh, is very, very, very nice. No, you are. So, I mean, I, I told, told you this off camera as well. One of, my, one of the things that has got me through when I felt exhausted is the show where you are, you're playing a, a, a fake foreigner. Mm. You're pretending to be French and or Spanish or Italian or whatever. Yeah. German, French, and Spanish. I think I get through. And it's almost it's like multilingual. <laughs> it's almost like you've taken the old Eddie Izzard joke, "La plume de mouton, de bingy bongy bangy bongy," yeah. to the next level. Yeah. And I just I can't stop crying about it. Oh. it you just do it perfectly. <laughs> Thank you. It was so good. You know, it's good when the BBC make it the clip of the show. You know. Yeah, what I, mean? I actually did really. I was very touched by that because it is quite nice when you suddenly see that they've put together like a little kind of montage of your bits and yeah. I'm like, oh well it must have been okay then <laughs> else. that's a quick fix on the show real front isn't it yeah fine take that on. Yeah, don't exactly. need to get an editor now <laughs> exactly. sorted send it straight out to cast and directors <laughs> hope for the best <laughs> but how did this because obviously you decided to be an actor when you were young and I'm guessing you didn't think I'm going to be an actor who specialises in bald farce no no I didn't <laughs> which is it's funny how these things come about, isn't it? That you think, I'm going to go to drama school and I'm going to be a really like serious actor and I'm going to, you know, maybe be in some kind of Rattigan play or like Shakespeare or something. And then um, you end up falling over for a living and trying to make people laugh. It's, it's a very weird turn of events, but I'm very glad that it's gone that way because I think there's something so rewarding about knowing that you can make people laugh and bring joy to people, especially at a moment when they need it, maybe. so. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it carries a responsibility, doesn't it? I mean, an actor's job, of course, is to portray and move an audience, be it mm. via TV, film, radio, theatre, etc. But I, I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, as a young actor, you know, you're used to moving an audience to tears or, or making an audience feel sad. Or, but then you have tapped into laughter. And that must be like phenomenal, but also really quite surreal. Mm. Mm. Like you measure your success in, in the same way a comedian does now. Yeah. Yeah, actually, it's a really good point. And, uh, and that has been quite interesting, kind of finding that out through theatre. And because um, with The Goes Wrong Show as well, we've got a live audience yeah. right there laughing in the moment. You know, you're constantly thinking, oh, am I going to get that laugh? If I don't get that laugh, am I awful? Um, so it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's hard to kind of... Is it one of those things where, I mean, I remember one of, one of my early career moments was I, I followed Coldplay around and I was chatting to Chris Martin and I'd just been at this amazing gig they performed in New York, you know, tens of thousands of people and they blew the house off, you know, Coldplay, mm. biggest band in the world and they yeah. were at the time. And I remember I, I was the first person that, that chatted to Chris, sat down and as soon as he came off stage and I thought they were amazing. Mm. Okay, the crowd thought they were amazing. There wasn't a person in the audience who wasn't going home blown away, and he was bummed out. Oh. And I was like, "What on earth is the matter with you?" <laughs> and he said, "Oh, the crowd were just like, like not really feeling it." I know. And I was like, "What? What? You really feed off what 
you perceive, don't you? Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we always say um, with the Goes Wrong shows that the audience is uh, another actor in the room, you know, because they're constantly feeding off what they're giving us. And if someone shouts out, we try and respond and, you know, almost we improvise with them, you know, as much as we can, because it's that kind of freshness that often brings about most of the laughs. Um, and um, it's funny that you have to teach yourself as an actor to come off. My parent and my parents have had it so many times, poor people who, uh, you know, they'll come out and they'll be like, amazing, you were great. And I'll be like, it was awful, <laughs> I was dreadful. And you kind of have to learn to go, no, 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 you know, that's just because you've done it hundred times to an audience. And so you're picking up on the tiniest little things that might not have gone exactly how you wanted them to. But the audience are living it for the first time and they, they might be looking at you thinking, God, that was a really great moment. Um, and you know, a matinee is gonna be different to an evening. And, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you've, you've really got to get used to being like, that happened and it's fine. They may have loved it. <laughs> Do you know, that's the really fascinating thing about being a performer, isn't it? You kind of, a bad day in the office for someone that works in an office is, you know, the email that's hit the, hit the inbox at 5.25 p.m. just as they want to go home. That's a bad day in the office. Yeah. Or, you know, there's been a customer who's been a real div and hasn't helped and has just really wrecked their day. Or, you know, they've, there's been a problem in accounts or whatever. <laughs> yeah. A bad day in the office for you. And, and my point is that more often than not, hopefully, you day. can kind of leave that in the office. You leave and it's like, well, I'll deal with that tomorrow. Whereas as a performer, you are literally living and breathing with emotions. Yeah, no, definitely. And um, yeah, as you say, I've done a couple of plays um, up in Newcastle, actually, um, at this amazing theatre called Live Theatre, and a couple of those haven't been comedies. They've been kind of more emotional plays, and I think actors talk about it a lot, but like not taking that energy home with you right. um, is really important. So, you know, if you, if you have... I guess it's different to having a bad day where something goes wrong on stage, but even just living bad experiences on stage in terms of what a character is going through as well, kind of leaving that on the stage or at the theater and then being able to go home and go, oh, that was the character and I'm not, I'm not actually feeling, you know, dreadful or wanting to cry. And yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. How do you separate um, the two? How do you separate Bryony from um, who Bryony's playing? Do you know, I've never, I've, I actually find that not, a, not too much of a problem. I think I've always just, I've always been able to separate them out. Um, music's really helpful. Okay. Kind of music really kind of um, helpful in that. Is that you, mostly bros? Mostly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, because you can listen to music that kind of helps inspire your character if you're, you know, and then going home and putting, there's nothing like kind of like putting on a, you know, good album or or a really great tv show and just watching something else for a bit that makes you go like literally just take your head somewhere else. yeah so when Escapism. you say music i'm sorry about the bros flippant joke it was just <laughs> anything for a gag these days but when you say music do you mean you attach music to the character you're playing or yes, you mean sometimes. you anchor briny in music uh no you can well kind of both i suppose yeah you can attach music to characters is, is a really great great way of getting into um a character emotionally if you need to, um, if you, before you're going on stage or something, to listen to something that has like a mood that you feel is right, that isn't kind of going to take over a scene, but just to have something that, because you know, music is, 
linked to your memory, which is immediately linked to emotions and how you can kind of bring that up on, on stage. And so if you listen to a piece of music that can help make you sad a little bit, as long as it's not going to take you to a place that's, you know, becomes therapy, then it's kind of fine. Bit of Sinead O'Connor. Bit of Sinead. Yeah. You know, blasting out. Why yeah. not? <laughs> bring the tears on. It makes it. Can you cry like that? Is that, is that um, a skill that you have? I don't want you to now, by the way. It's just a question. Are you sure? Because I will. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not. Um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, again, it's just one of those weird skills that you pick up. So you can. Like, it seems you like a weird it. thing to be able to say, oh, yeah, I could probably cry. But would you have to go to a dark place to do it? Or would you just, can you just kind of access the tear duct and just kind of go, right, out you go, pop. <sighs> you know, I haven't had to do it in so, because of the comedy, I haven't had to do it in so long that I can't really remember but I think a bit of both there's obviously there's obviously a, a technical side to it where you go okay I know that doing a certain thing will help it's looking at a certain point or I don't know yeah that all helps the technique of it all helps but I think you always do have to go somewhere slightly slightly emotional otherwise yeah. what's the point yeah no I, kind I, of, hear I don't you. know I you hear know? you I think it's a mad world that actors live in, isn't it? You, you, you're always having to think, you're always having to switch in and out from yourself to the character, to the next role, as well as, you know, living your own life. Yeah. It's pretty full on. You, yeah. You're kind of always bombarded <laughs> with emotions. Yeah. I suppose so. I kind of love that, though. Yeah. Because that's part of the fun of it, isn't it? Being other people. It's the thing that get, well, got me into it in the first place is that the excitement of going, oh my God, I can play anything that yeah. I want. I can be anyone that I want. To an extent, maybe that's changing slightly nowadays. I don't know, but yeah, that you can kind of be anyone. No, absolutely, it's it's wonderful. At what age did you think, right, this is it? My life is going to be, I'm going to be a performer. Acting is my thing. Well, it's interesting because I'd originally wanted to be a dancer. Okay. So I'd done a lot of ballet and contemporary and tap and all whatever I could do. And kind of got my love of performing through doing that and performing on stage, kind of dancing. And then um, I got to a point where I thought, actually, I'm not good enough dancer. <laughs> I'm really not good enough, but I'm not going to be a professional. And I don't know if my body wants to do that anyway. My mum was a ballet dancer and um, she had to stop fairly young because she ruined her back and ruined her hips. And, you know, a dancer's career isn't very long anyway. And um, I started doing... Um, kind of theatre, um, what you know, after school and stuff at the Theatre Royal in Newcastle and various things, and really loved it. And thought, well, actually, you know, there's maybe longevity in this career that dancing doesn't have. And I really enjoyed like the storytelling side of that and playing different characters, as I said. So, kind of got into it that way. Um, yeah. Were you gutted okay. when you realised that dancing wasn't going to happen? Was there a bit of you that was like... No. No, really? No, because I, I've done it for so long, I think. And I think I felt a certain amount of guilt because all my my teachers and my parents, maybe, who'd, who'd you know, I'd gone to classes, but like pretty much the whole of my life, maybe thought that was what I was going to do. And obviously that's a money and commitment and time and effort. But really, at the end of the day, just like well we want you to do what's going to make you happy and if dancing's not going to make you happy and then definitely go and do acting yeah brilliant so 
yeah, I really wanted to. <laughs> Have you been taught from an early age? Because, of course, I mean, you know, we can hear it in your voice and then I know about it. You're on mm. Geordie, which I love, mm. you know. We're, we're kindred spirits from the northeast. I uh, know. But when we, you know, when we think about your kind of your upbringing, etc., it, it feels to me like you've always been supported. You know, your, your parents have been huge models in the briny, you can do anything. Kind yeah. of mold. Is, have I read that right? You have read that completely right. They're they're amazing. Um, they've always been really supportive, and I think that that is. I'm very lucky for that. I know people that don't have that support, and I think actually it would be much harder. This profession is hard enough as it is, and I think without having people who've got your back, going, you know, go for that audition, or like, I've got no money, can you know? But I need, but I really want to do this audition. Can I take the day off work and you know, to have people there going, absolutely do it. You know, don't worry about the day off work. We'll you know help you if we can. And you know, they're not the they don't have money. My parents are working class. Uh, as I said, my mum was a dancer. She's now a sports therapist. My dad is a builder. So my their support of me doing it was, yeah. I don't know, unexpected? Not unexpected, but you know what I mean. I don't know. They've just always been really great about it. That's brilliant. That's what parents have to be, isn't it? That's what I know. you're supposed to be. Good ones. Yeah. yeah, you've got good ones then. Yeah. Can, I mean, that does, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people in my career. I've been very lucky to have spoken to people from all walks of life, many of them extremely successful. And the thing that I have found that does seem to be a, a common theme is that that belief in self, either from themselves or from parents. Mm. And it just, it, every day I kind of think, you know, why aren't people hammering this home to, to bad parents? If you're a good parent, your kid could do really anything well. You know, they could do anything they want in this world. Just yeah. be kind to them and support them and put your arm around them and say, you're great and yeah. we've got you. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Be better parents. You yeah, know, that's all you need. You know. really, you're yours good? Yeah. Yours, is that why you're... Yeah. They're cracking. They're cracking. Yeah, my mum's my Champion. Mara. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. Belief, okay. isn't it? I mean, you know, obviously, we know that acting's a very vulnerable profession. So there must be times when you kind of... When it, when it isn't all just glossy. And, and obviously, we've had lockdown as well. We've had theatres shutting. We, you know, we know that there's relief, etc. But nonetheless, there, there must have been plenty of times in the recent past and beyond where you have thought to yourself well how am I paying the rent this week mm. oh definitely I mean this this is the thing about actors is um you know I think it's the, the it's the top one percent that actually do most of the you know the people that the everyday person sees on screen uh, or on tv watching you know that's one percent of all the actors yeah. that are actually out there working fringe theatres and any theatres really, um, and um, every you know everybody else is supplementing their acting work with um, other jobs. That be it bar work, cafes. Um, I do kids parties. I've done lambda exam work. You know, chaperoning people in and out of their exams. Um, but you're in that one percent now, Bryony. You know, you got a, well, a BBC <laughs> One show. You were in that Amazon show with um, yeah, Michael Sheen. Yeah, good omens. Exactly. I like, I like that job. Yeah, That's a great one. Yeah, that was unexpected and, and great. Um, so yes, I mean, yes, but also, you know, even when you are that person who's maybe, maybe people do look at me and think you've done quite a bit of TV screen work now, but 
I still have to supplement that with other things, you know, at the moment, because those jobs come up. I'm still very much at the beginning of my career, I right, think. Right. Um, and the Goes Wrong show has been an amazing step into, into TV for me, which does open doors. Um, but, you know, filming takes three months of the year, and then you've yeah. got the rest of the year to kind of supply your income in some other way. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's a, it's a weird world. So what's your, what's your dream? What's, what is it that you would love to achieve? I want to be an actor who, I would love one day to, for acting to be my main, the, the only thing that I do, you know, the main source of income and the, the one thing where I don't, where you kind of, you know, you watch it with people like David Tennant and, yeah. and Michael Sheen, people like that, where they're not having to necessarily scrabble together for parts anymore. It's the, the offers come towards in. them. Yeah. That, how fantastic would that be? You know, that would be amazing. I'd love to do more TV, TV work. I really enjoyed the Goes Wrong show. Um, as we said, like as much as I love comedy and I would, do, I would happily do comedy for the rest of my life. I love it. Um, and it was one of the things that inspired me most when I was little was watching the Green Wing. Um, and yes, Green Wing's a brilliant show. I love Great it's one. my favorite. And it, it was like my biggest inspiration, to be honest. Um, but also, I love like the gritty dramas as well. And I would be thrilled if I could get into that. So too. if we jump ahead 30 years, mm. you can either replicate Jennifer Saunders' career okay. or Helen Mirren's career. Oh, man. Who do you choose? You, you have to make a choice. Well, Which career? Because I think both are phenomenal. Both have achieved amazing things. Both have been outliers in their fields. Which which actor would you like to copy? Oh, no. Can I be Olivia Coleman instead? Because then I can do both. <laughs> then I can do comedy and... Um, oh, God, I couldn't even pick. I think it would... It'd have to be Jennifer. It would have to be Jennifer no. Saunders. Because... Because... I think that... Having funny bones is actually a bit of a rarity. Yeah. Like being able to do comedy, like there are certain actors that can do it, but some actors really can't, I think. But so I think that being right. able to do comedy is like actually helps you do the more serious stuff better. Like Olivia Coleman and um, you know, oh god, there's so there's so many people that I admire and and but you're saying no to prime suspect. I yeah. mean, you know, it can call it. Jennifer, yeah. You, get, yeah, it's yeah. absolutely fabulous Steve for you. Cook and all of that, you know, when you see them then do the serious stuff, you go, oh my God, that's Steve Coogan doing, um, you know, yes, you're a absolutely serious right. role. You're absolutely right. A, com wow. a comedic actor who then does a serious always takes you by surprise. It always yeah. disarms you and probably buys you an extra 5% of the audience. Because they're expecting you to try and make them laugh. And it's like, what? what? This yeah. I'm crying, what? I, I came for the funny, what happened? Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. So maybe Jennifer Saunders. You've thought this through. Mm. I love mm. it. Got it. it. Otherwise, you know, where are you going to go? Especially with lockdown. There's nothing going on. No, make him laugh. <sighs> Goes Wrong Show's coming back? Hope so. Must do. Yeah, well, we've so there's a second series planned. It's supposed to be... Filming in August, uh, no, October, October. Okay. Now, but you know, we keep being told, oh yeah, it'll go ahead in October. Um, but who knows? I mean, things are changing on a weekly basis, aren't they? So yeah. 
but we can just hope we need <laughs> that it. we get to we do need it. it. It's a public service and a necessity. Yeah. Plus, I need you to keep me laughing. I know. Who yeah. else is going to do it? Bryony, I think you're amazing. I think you've got a huge future ahead of you. I've said this to you before. You know, you know this. I think you're doing amazing things. You're hilarious. You're brilliant. You're charming and very self-effacing. And you've been a lovely guest. Thank you so much for your company. Thank you for having me. Happy Thank days. You. Happy days. <laughs> Driven with Andy J on Talk Radio in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.